Hey guys, and welcome to Hacked Off. In today's episode, I wanted to talk to you about something a little bit different. I want to talk about election security. Now, the reason that this has come up for me is I was recently a guest on the Demystifying Tech podcast, and it was one of the things that they raised amongst other items. And it's a a really involved area of security, and it's really interesting because some of the challenges are just different to what we face in in other areas of cybersecurity. So I I kind of wanted to to expand on some of the points I raised there. So I'll give a a foundation of, of what I covered in that podcast for people who haven't heard it, and then I'll talk a little bit about why election security is cool and, and also maybe a little bit um, older and more mature than, than you expect. We, we often think of kind of the security, cybersecurity of elections as being quite a new thing, but it's, uh, it's definitely been uh, on the radar for certainly over a decade. Um, 14, 15 years uh, is, is as far back as some of the research that I've been looking at. So why would somebody want to break into an election and what is it that you could possibly break into? I'm going to talk uh, briefly, at least, about both online voting and voting through electronic machines. So online voting where you vote from your own uh, laptop or mobile phone, something like that. And then online, uh, then electronic voting machines where you would go to a polling station, but instead of filling in a paper ballot, it would be a machine there. I'll talk about both of those. Firstly, though, when it comes to actually hacking an election, what the desired outcome for the uh, threat actor is could be maybe more things than you would consider. I think a lot of people when it comes to to elections would think of uh, a threat actor, probably a, a foreign nation state, who would want to change the outcome of an election. And, and that certainly is a risk. But it's not the only thing that you could do in theory. So what else could you do? I think one of the most powerful attacks is just making it look like the election has been tampered with and then effectively causing the public to to have less trust in the democratic process. So this could be something simple like um, hacking some systems that are related to the election, but making it really obvious that they've been uh, hacked, really obvious that they've been tampered with, so that people are unsure what the outcome was, both the outcome of the hacking, but also of the election itself. An alternative approach might be something like uh, hacking not the election itself, but the announcement system, how um, states, counties announce who won, so that uh, the re- results come through unclear. There's that as an option. And of course, there's there's good old data theft. Um, there is voting registration systems that hold uh, quite a lot of personal information, or certainly at least things like personal name and home address. And you can target those systems. Um, and now that might not be foreign nation states who are targeting that system, it, it might just be cyber criminals. It's just personal data which could be useful in some way. One, uh, one final thing on that uh, messing with registration data might be simply to disrupt the election process itself. So if you can access registration systems, that the database that holds uh, the data who, of, uh, who is eligible to vote, if you can disrupt that, change records, delete records, those kinds of things, when people actually go to the polling stations to vote, it can seriously mess with the polling station uh, runnings. So this could be uh, people who should be registered not being registered and the disruption that that causes. 
And you can effectively think of it just as making the lines longer, making the media response about the election worse, uh, and again, uh, raising distrust in the democratic process itself. So in terms of what actually hacking an election consists of, it's possibly more than, than what you necessarily thought it would be. But in terms of um, how long have we thought about election security and, and how long has it been a problem, I was reading a headline yesterday that uh, read effectively that the, the British government has cancelled its plans to use online voting systems, citing cybersecurity concerns. And although I read that article yesterday, it was actually written in 2007. So over a decade ago, 12 years ago, the, the British government had already been looking at using online voting systems and, and at the time had decided that there were too many challenges or there were too many challenges that they weren't in a position to effectively deal with. And effectively can mean there's risks that can't be addressed or it might just mean that it's really expensive and the system that they're currently using is adequate. Um, so online voting systems have been around for a long time. Even before that article in 2007, um, Estonia have been holding uh, their elections online. I think the first Estonian online uh, vote was in 2005. So that's a long, long time ago. Now, at the time, not so many people actually voted online, although something like 80% of the population were eligible to. Less than 1% of voters did so online. Well, that's been steadily growing, and uh, as of 2019, it was 43% of the vote. Now, one of the questions that came up on the Demystifying Tech podcast as I was talking through the challenges of uh, online voting and, and uh, electronic machine voting was well, what are other countries doing and, and why is it working for them? And I think people uh, can look at things like Estonia's online voting system and say, well, well, they're doing it, why, why can't we? And that's not necessarily an unfair question, but I, I didn't answer it very well. or I, I felt like I floundered a little bit on that question. And there's a couple of different reasons for that, but I'll, I'll try and give you an, an idea of where this comes from. Firstly, um, Estonia has something that uh, we in Britain don't have, and that's a national identity card system. So people can vote using that national ID. Now, that isn't to say that if we had a national ID system, then all of the challenges of online voting would go away. That's just something that they have that we don't, which makes it easier for the uh, votes to be to be handled, for them to determine um, who can vote, and I guess more importantly, that the person who is eligible is the one voting if they are physically in possession of the national identity card. Now, the way these ID cards work is, is quite interesting. They have digital certificates on them, and that allows for uh, the signing of, of messages. So they use these digital certificates that are built into the identity cards to effectively register the vote. Now, through this kind of remote voting system, people often worry about things like um, voting coercion. Maybe you could force somebody to vote the way that you wanted to. You could possibly discount that based on you couldn't do that kind of attack en masse, but either way, there is a way that they've addressed that somewhat. Uh, and that is through the Estonian voting system, you can vote multiple times during that um, pre-election window. And they count whichever was the last one. So if you are coerced into voting, you can simply, at a later time, vote again, and it, and it would discount that original. So they've thought of some of these challenges. But one of the things that comes up is... Um, well, how have they protected their online systems? We're sending this data, and yes, okay, you can use a um, digital certificate for the signing of the message and things like that, but they still have hosted infrastructure, uh, web applications, those kinds of things. How, how are they protecting those? And I don't have the answer for that. 
I don't have uh, an answer as to, to why they consider that secure enough or uh, effectively um, how they've dealt with online security because those are challenges that um, a lot of organizations don't feel like they've addressed and a lot of people would probably consider uh, voting or elections to be even more critical than most organizations. Uh, I was talking to someone who said that they would consider voting even more critical than than banking because most banking issues can be fixed retroactively, um, but they wouldn't necessarily be comfortable with that in the context of voting. So, so there's more challenges, but one of the reasons that they can pull it off is because of this national identity card. Now, I said that I'm not familiar with how they're securing their online systems, but that doesn't mean that other countries haven't come forward with how they're protecting theirs or not protecting theirs. And uh, in, in that context, there was... Um, the, the Swiss government, the government of, of Switzerland, started looking at um, online voting as an option. And the way that they approached it was, was quite interesting. So this is uh, early 2019, something like February 2019. They announced a public intrusion test, as they called it, into the online voting system. Public intrusion test, it, it sounds strange to um, to English speakers, possibly. Uh, we might think, is that like a penetration test? Uh, but really, it's more like a bug bounty. So they're allowing people to take a look at their systems. And if you find a vulnerability, they'll give you a monetary reward for that to encourage people to both look and disclose issues that they find. And the, the monetary payouts were as, as high as $50,000. Uh, so certainly, you know, a, a pretty high payout for this kind of uh, work. And uh, intrusion test isn't necessarily uh, an unusual term. You can you can think of it in that same context. Can you find a vulnerability? And if you can, then we'll uh, pay you some money for that. Uh, as part of this uh, public intrusion test, or this bug bounty if you prefer, they were uh, allowing the researchers access to the source code so that they could look through the source code for vulnerabilities and things like the cryptographic system. And uh, ironically, the source code was leaked. Now, this is interesting in the context of election security for a few different reasons. One of the major challenges of election security is the fact that we very often don't know how and why systems are secure. So in that same way that I, I said for Estonia's systems, I, I don't have the answer as to why they're secure. That's true of many things, such as electronic voting machines. Now, I'll, I'll get to the challenges of, of why we don't know why electronic voting machines are, are uh, secure in, in a moment. But just to finish the, the, the Swiss government story... They offered this bug bounty for people to start looking at their um, systems. The source code was leaked to the wider internet. Now, those who participated in the bug bounty ha had to sign an agreement. And, and this isn't uncommon for this kind of research work where you sign some agreement around things like the scope of the engagement, the types of vulnerabilities that will receive a payout, and, and very often things like non-disclosure agreements. And things like non-disclosure agreements um, in this particular case, though, because the source code was leaked, there was researchers looking at these systems that hadn't agreed to any kind of non-disclosure or something like that, and were um, fairly publicly, and, and certainly on, on systems like Twitter, talking about the vulnerabilities that they were finding, the work that they were doing, their opinion of the security of this system, which can be uh, just as important, because like I say, a lot of election security is based around trust. If people are talking about the system being insecure, then... Non-technical people or people who don't feel that they can verify these things themselves will potentially lose trust in the system. There's a brilliant quotation that I'll paraphrase from one of the guys who uh, looked at the, the vulnerabilities that were found and said, one of the vulnerabilities 
looked like a back door, and he wouldn't say that it was put there intentionally, but he, if he had designed a back door, this is how he would have made it look. So saying that kind of thing publicly can, can really impact people's trust. But what is it that happened? Well, some researchers looked at the system and they found some really important vulnerabilities and they started publishing them on Twitter. And in fact, there was a, a proper uh, academic paper written that had details of the vulnerability, uh, references, uh, a proof of concept, those kinds of things. And then the company behind the voting system, um, CITL, I presume that's how it's spelled. It's uh, Sierra Charlie Yankee, Sierra Charlie Yankee Tango Lima, CITL, I presume. Um, they released a statement that said, uh, these criticisms are mainly based on misunderstandings related to the cryptographic mechanism, which have been clarified and solved in the official repository. So they're saying these researchers who are looking at the system simply don't understand it. But there was a line in there as well about um, the mechanisms implemented in the code are very advanced and not commonly found in other software. So basically talking down about some of the research that had been found and said, these people don't understand this system. Yeah, they think they found a vulnerability, but, but perhaps they haven't. Uh, and also mentioning that posting these public comments is uh, fostering misunderstandings and generating confusions, and, and, and that's bad. However, a, a couple of weeks later, something like three weeks later, they released another statement, which may have been related, which said, uh, we are thankful to the researchers who helped us identify this issue and support us in building the future of secure online voting. So we've gone from these people don't understand to thank you for raising this vulnerability. So, so quite a change. And um, some of the details of that were interesting. But in short, a significant vulnerability was found. And that vulnerability would allow attackers to alter votes without the verification system being able to detect that. So uh, effectively you know, bypassing the verification system or, or making it seem like the altered votes w were verified correctly. Um, and they released a full description of, of how that attack works. So... I guess um, on on one hand, the, the bug bounty worked, right? They released this um, code and they wanted people to find vulnerabilities so that they could uh, address them, but it, it didn't necessarily go the way they planned with things like the source code being leaked. And whilst that not necessarily being the worst thing for security due to Kirchhoff's principle, uh, it, it does make the, them seem bad, right? It, it, it comes off as uh, bad for the organization. Uh, and certainly these vulnerabilities being discovered, um, yes, they can fix the vulnerabilities, but people will be saying things like, well, what if other vulnerabilities exist? And you can always say that, but that uh, backdoor uh, statement that I paraphrased earlier uh, obviously makes it sound really bad. Um, so yeah, they, they did a bug bounty. It, it didn't go so well. And I think this is one of the problems of um, online voting systems where, where people, you know, they're, they're not entirely transparent. That doesn't mean that online voting doesn't have benefits so the ability for people to want vote online, be it by visiting a website or using a mobile application or something like that, have um, several main benefits. The, the first would be around accessibility and those kinds of things. If you aren't physically able to visit a polling station and stand in line for hours and hours and hours, then online voting might be easier for you. So that that's a good thing to increase the number of people who can vote. I've seen some research around there about whether it actually increases voter turnout or not. And uh, it, it seems to be somewhat controversial as to whether that's actually proven or not. Uh, but it certainly can increase convenience. There was also one piece that said um, 
even just online voter registration can increase voter turnout. So there's definitely some some data there that suggests online voting would be a good thing to increase voter turnout. But one of the things to consider is when large numbers of people can't poll for some reason. So there's an example of this that uh, Matt Blair is a, a fairly well-known uh, cryptography researcher pointed out that um, in New Jersey, following Hurricane Sandy, many displaced citizens um, couldn't cast their votes in their normal polling station. So as a response to this, the um, officials effectively released a directive that said they, they were looking at building an email voting and a uh, fax-based voting as well, so that people who were displaced but maybe could get an internet connection where they were and, and wouldn't be able to visit their regular polling station um, could possibly have a means of voting. And in that kind of situation, you can expect that, hey, yeah, online voting would, would be a good thing. Now, there's a lot of potential problems with that. Um, setting up these systems at scale is difficult, but even just where these systems have come from an emergency where they weren't planned for, um, setting the systems up in, in so little time, uh, not having the time to prepare and deal with the challenges is possibly not the right idea. Um, also, how helpful would the fax aspect of that be? <laughs> Maybe the email part was the part that people would use. But yeah, there are there are benefits to online voting, be it increased voter turnout, be it increased accessibility, or be it things like this, where people are um, displaced due to an emergency or an expected situation, and they can still vote. I mentioned earlier, though, that there's problems with transparency around uh, voting. And this could be um, around the online elections, as I mentioned, but but really what I was talking about there is um, the electronic voting machines themselves. Now, if you wanted to just buy a voting machine to play around with it, you might struggle somewhat. And that, that doesn't mean you can't get a hold of them. But if you um, contacted a vendor of these machines and said, hey, I want to buy one of your machines so that I can hack it, uh, maybe they wouldn't hack so kindly to that. Also, there's some challenges around whether you would legally be allowed to hack it and what hacking means. So um, I'm not a lawyer, but I know that there's challenges, certainly under US law, with things like the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the DMCA, around whether you're allowed to reverse engineer devices or not. So those people who are operating in America, there's, there's those kinds of challenges. Now, that there was an exception for voting machines given against the DMCA for an initial three-year period. Um, so they're not overcomable challenges, they're not challenges you can't overcome. But um, certainly the, there are challenges. Can you get one of these devices? And if you if you can and you hack it, is that representative? Um, you know, there's multiple vendors, those kinds of things. But uh, a funny almost solution to this was that in uh, 2017, DEFCON, the, the hacking conference, the, the biggest hacking conference in the world effectively, gosh, when I was last there, it was... 26,000 attendees or something. That was a year or so ago, so be pushing for 30,000 attendees, no doubt, soon. Um, a huge, huge conference. What, what they actually did was manage to acquire some of these uh, voting systems and then just had them in one of their villages. If you're not familiar with the term village in the context of security conferences, it's just an area of a conference where people can go to um, learn about a certain thing or uh, do a certain kind of research. So DEFCON has villages for automotive security, car hacking, um, packet capture, wireless, um, lock picking, all kinds of things. And, and they made, in 2017, uh, what I'm sure is the first voting machine hacking village. And, and they let people take a look at some of these devices that they acquired. Where, where did they acquire these devices from? 
Well, if I remember the story correctly, there was um, some challenge around uh, a company who had a lot of voting machines where there was a storm that damaged the building and the insurance company ended up paying for the, the building, but as a part of that, acquiring the machines and these got handed on to a recycle center and the recycle center eventually put them on, on eBay <laughs> and um, through online uh, auctions that DEFCON guys managed to get hold of some of these voting machines, put them in a village and, and let people hack them. And, and I don't want to dwell on the, the specific outcomes from each type of hacking machine. If you want to see that, um, in September 2017, DEFCON released the report on cyber vulnerabilities in US election equipment, databases, and infrastructure. And that report goes into a lot more detail about the specifics than I can here. But in short, a lot of the problems that were highlighted were, to be honest, a lot of the problems that we talk about on this podcast quite frequently. Um, devices with insecure Wi-Fi, devices with old vulnerabilities. Um, I think the first machine to, got comp to get compromised, uh, the AVS WinVote, was remotely compromised over Wi-Fi using a vulnerability from 2003. Yeah, these devices don't necessarily get updated as quickly as they should. All that kind of basic security hygiene stuff that we talk about so frequently, that we, that we sometimes call security foundations. Um, yeah, the, there's um, old vulnerabilities to deal with. Um, there's also an interesting thing where they managed to extract um, 650,000 uh, voter records from one of the machines because the machine hadn't been correctly decommissioned. I think that was the Express Poll machine. So yeah, these things have vulnerabilities. Now, very often people will discount these uh, vulnerabilities because they either require physical access or they require you to be close to the machine or exploiting them en masse would be difficult. Um, and that is fair. Now, it's very, very bad that somebody who can get physical access to a machine for only a small number of minutes, two, three minutes, can, can do these bad things. But it's certainly not nation-state level changing the outcome of an election in many cases. Sometimes it is. Sometimes elections can be that close, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, but it's bad, right? It's bad that these systems have such old vulnerabilities that could probably easily be dealt with with some common software updates. Um, but is there anything that we know about where uh, a bigger attack has taken place? And and we do. Um, the, the wider election system, certainly in the US, was targeted. And this is kind of um, fairly well known now because of the Mueller report. Now, I don't want to get into all of the details of the Mueller report, um, or rather to give it its official name, the report on the investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. But if you haven't read the Mueller report, it's very long and, and very redacted, and it can be frustrating to read. But there was some things in there that I think would be shocking to people who, who um, haven't necessarily read the details. So in the context of election hacking, have we ever seen nation states perform wide-scale en masse attacks where they gained access to um, significant systems, and if they did, how did they do it? Well, the Mueller report details this in a few different ways, and again, it's nothing special. I mentioned previously outdated software, but also the report says, by at least the summer of 2016, GRU officers sought access to state and local computer networks by exploiting known software vulnerabilities on websites of state and local government entities. GRU officers, for example, targeted 
state and local databases of registered voters using a technique known as SQL injection, SQL injection. Now, this is funny to me because uh, this is by at least the summer of 2016, as the wording says. And in 2015, I wrote an article called SQL Injection Basics and Defenses. I was certainly not the first person to write on SQL injection. The first person that I know of who wrote on that was the, the hacker Rainforest Puppy, who wrote about SQL injection in 1998. So an ancient vulnerability. Okay, so the, the GRU, or sometimes called the GU, that's a thing that uh, a lot of people don't, don't pick up on. Um, the, the GU is, is like their official acronym, but the GRU is what they're commonly known about, uh, by. This is similar to the SIS in England or in Britain. Uh, the SIS are more commonly known as MI6. But the GRU uh, not only targeted these systems, but in one instance, in approximately June 2016, the GRU compromised the computer network of the Illinois State Board of Elections by exploiting a vulnerability in the SBOE's website. So, yeah, they, they were successful. What did that allow them to do? Well, it allowed them to gain access to a database containing information on millions of registered voters. So one of those vulnerabilities that I talked about right at the beginning of this podcast, which is maybe you would just want to steal personal information. There's lots of hacking crews out there where personal information might be relevant to you. And yeah, they got thousands of US voters' uh, personal information from that registration system. So it's happened before is a sad thing. And also, they're not using new or, or cool vulnerabilities. So it's just something to bear in mind. Uh, one of the other risks, in fact, there's two other risks that the, the Mueller report uh, pointed out, which we should probably worth looking at. The, the first is uh, spear phishing. Spear phishing was used... Uh, to, to gain access to, to a company. The company is redacted, uh, but, but the line reads, GRU officers targeted employees of Redacted, a voting technology company that developed software used by numerous US counties to manage voter rolls and installed malware on the computer network. So we have ancient vulnerabilities, like outdated patches, SQL injection, and, and things that are really well known, like, like spear phishing. Hey, this is uh, possibly disappointing to a lot of people, but I guess certainly not shocking. Um, what else did they mention? Uh, the DEFCON report and the Mueller report both pointed out the the risks of, um, or certainly the DEFCON report did it in an interesting way. In fact, they pointed out the, the risks of the supply chain. So the Mueller report is saying the supply chain is a risk because uh, foreign nation states could, could target these software companies. Whereas the DEFCON report simply said that components in these devices are made by foreign nation states. And they, in fact, specifically pointed out China as, as one of these um, countries, which I guess makes sense, right? China makes a lot of electronic componentry, which may end up in these devices. And that could be a risk. It's not a risk that's um, easily addressed. I was asked in the, the Demystifying podcast, um, you know, could, could you build uh, a secure voting system? And I, and I think I joked something along the lines of, give me a trillion dollars in a decade. And um, yeah, you know, we can overcome these challenges, but 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 they're not cheap. They're, they're, they're pretty difficult. So yeah, a lot of people would target um, elections. Online voting isn't a new concept. The vulnerabilities are not a new concept. Um, does that make paper perfect? Am I saying we get to the end here and say, we're just not in a state of security maturity where we are able to run these elections online, we should just go back to paper. Um, well, 
They're the best voting systems aren't perfect either. The one thing that people generally cite as the reason that they prefer paper-based systems, though, is the so-called audit trail. So if you have a paper-based system where, you know, you're marking a ballot sheet or, or punching a hole in a ballot sheet, something like that, then you'll still have those physical ballots. And this can differ to some electronic voting systems where if there's a problem, if the voting system breaks, crashes, is, is corrupted, maybe we would lose some of that audit trail. You wouldn't with paper-based systems, so that is a benefit. They're not perfect, though. Um, I think the best example of that is the hanging chads of Florida, which wasn't something that I was familiar with until quite recently, when, it, when I was trying to look at the, the audit systems that uh, electronic voting systems can use. But the, the hanging chad story, if you, if you haven't heard it before very briefly, was to do with the election in Florida in 2000, where you would... Uh, punch holes in a ballot card to to register your vote. And the problem was with people punching the holes. Um, does the hole have to be completely clean with, with no, you know, frayed edge? Does it count if you punch most of the way through? Um, those kinds of things. And the, the result of this was that the election was, was fairly close. This is the uh, Gore-Bush election. And depending on how you counted what what officially counted as a punched hole and changed the outcome. So if you were to take uh, the lenient standard where effectively any mark on the paper, be it like a dimple or, or a perforation or a complete hole, counted so that the uh, the lenient standard, then Bush won. And Bush won by you know, 1,500 votes. It was uh, 1,665 votes, something like that. So uh, a fair number. However, if you took the strict standard, where only a clean counted hole, uh, a clean punched hole counts, uh, and apply that to undervotes, um, then Gore won, and only by three votes. So you can see in some of these elections, they're 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 so tight. And also, just because you have these paper ballots doesn't mean that uh, a recount is easy. Um, it can take a very long time, and um, it can be very very challenging and legally challenging. Uh, as well. So it's it's something to think about. But if you're interested in kind of the, the cliff notes of election security, hopefully I've delivered that for you. I would say that the big things to think about here is that hacking election isn't just swaying who won, but it can be affecting the trust in that election, or it can just be stealing data that's gathered for the smooth running of the election. Online voting and voting machines both have problems. They have problems such as machines crashing, not being delivered with power cables, those kinds of things but also a lot of vulnerabilities. And many of those vulnerabilities aren't cool new things like zero-day vulnerabilities in the hardware, but they're simple things like missing patches. And again, that thing that we always talk about on this podcast, SQL injection, that ancient vulnerability that children can exploit using automated hacking tools. Um, so yeah, hopefully that was a, an interesting run through the cliff notes of election security for you. Um, I'm curious to to hear from you guys though. Um, do you think we should be pushing towards online voting? Or are you in the party where you just think um, paper is the only way to go? How how confident are you in um, a well-resourced government's ability to set up these systems? I'd be very interested to hear your opinion. I would also be interested to hear your opinion in 
Um, if you can think of anything else that you can do with these systems, I tried to give a couple of examples of what the electronic voting target might be for a threat actor who targets these things. Um, is there anything else that, that you can think of that, that might be just technically interesting uh, as an output there? Um, let us know over social media. I'm always interested to hear your kind of takeaways from, from these discussions. Let us know on, on Twitter or, or um, whatever social media preference you have, and I'll see you for the next podcast. <laughs> <laughs>